My name is Dave Beck. I'm a host and producer for 27 years now at KUW Public Radio 94.9. And in my life away from radio, I'm a freelance cellist. I try to be as active in the musical community around here as, as you can be when you're a parent and broadcaster and just dealing with life in general. Um, the, the passage of time and uh, the, the strength and uh, intertwining of my Seattle musical roots is something I've been thinking about a lot in the past few months. And during this time, as the artistic leadership of the Seattle Chamber Music Festival uh, has passed along from the founder, um, Toby Sachs, my cello professor at the University of Washington back in the late 70s and 80s, uh, passed along onto this gentleman, the distinguished violinist and, and the new artistic director um, and Ch Seattle Chamber Music Society veteran, uh, James Ennis. Uh, Toby was talking about James being, you were, you were a teenager. Yeah, really, the, when, the first when, time I came here, came here, I was uh, 19. Let's welcome James Ennis with a round <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. You are playing uh, and have programmed a lot of chamber music this season at the Winter Festival concerts um, that have never been heard on Seattle Chamber Music Society concerts before. And much of that material is from the string quartet repertoire. Um, tell me about what drew you so strongly to adding string quartets. Well, as far as adding the new repertoire and the string quartets, they, they sort of go together and they're also sort of separate ideas. Um, <clears throat> I think that the thought process behind having pieces new to our repertoire on each program, which is something that's going to continue all through the summer season as well, um, that's basically, I think, a celebration of how vast and how rich the chamber music literature really is. We've been going for 30 years, and uh, some of you may have seen the uh, repertoire list that uh, surfaces periodically up on the table <laughs> uh, up at the hall, and it's pretty thick and pretty impressive. We've done a lot of great music, but there's always more to do, you know, and it's not like I'm having to scrape up pieces from the bottom of the barrel or pieces by composers that you've never heard of. I mean, we have new pieces this winter and summer by composers like you know, Dvorak and Brahms and Beethoven, people that uh, it's, it's kind of surprising that these pieces haven't been performed, but there just is so much great music out there. So that uh, I thought was a, was an interesting thing to celebrate. And as far as the quartets go, um, there are a lot of quartets that... <laughs> To be to be blunt, you you need a lot of rehearsal, mm -hmm. and uh, at a chamber music festival, uh, just the nature of the game is things have to be put together in a pretty condensed amount of time. Uh, something about the nature of quartet writing, and this certainly isn't always the case. I mean, I it's a delicate thing to talk about because I certainly never want to give the impression that well, we just kind of whip things together as best we can in the limited amount of time we have. Just, there are certain pieces that to get them to the place where they need to be, it just simply takes more hours for some types of repertoire than for other types of repertoire because every piece that we perform needs to be on a certain level. So the process of getting there uh, for a lot of the string quartet literature is not the sort of thing that's that practical um, unless you're able to work with people who you're very close with, that you work with a lot. And uh, the quartets that we're doing this 
well, at all of the pre-concerts this year, as well as the uh, the Bartok and Souk on the Friday program, those are all with a group of us that play together a great deal and do a lot of quartet work outside the festival. So uh, what you'll be hearing on these concerts was not just whipped together in the last few days. Um, or maybe I should say it was, if that sounds more impressive. But, <laughs> uh, but no, this has been uh, something we've been working hard at for, for quite some time. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, I mean, I, there's there's going to be a Shostakovich quartet on the program tonight, which I just heard, and it sounds absolutely fabulous and wonderful and exciting. And uh, and those remarkable people put it together in about how long have we been here? Four or five days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At at some point, maybe towards the end of the hour, because we have a lot of music we want to get to. Uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about the the different dynamic between a group of four players that are. You know, maybe playing together for the first time versus mm-hmm. this ongoing partnership you have. It's when we should, for the record here, it's it's you and Amy Schwartz Moretti, uh, violins, Richard O'Neill, viola, and Robert Domain, mm-hmm. cello, and um, have played a lot together, as you men- mentioned. Amy and uh, Robert and I all met at summer camp in 1989. Wow. So we've known each other for kind of a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we w- we're going to begin with Brahms, because you're doing the cycle right. of uh, three Brahms string quartets. A composer who, if you know the symphonies, he held himself to incredibly high standards <laughs> as, as a composer. The symphonies, depending on the source uh, you consult, the first symphony was 15 to 20 years in the making. He right. agonized over string quartets in a similar way. Right. Well, Brahms, I think uh, not only did he want to make his first his first published works in these mediums uh not only did did he want them to be just what he wanted musically but i think there must have been a part of him that sort of wanted them to be somewhat bulletproof in terms of criticism the first symphony there there was so much pressure most of it i think self-inflicted um of how do you write a symphony in the grand tradition of symphonies after Beethoven's Ninth. What could you possibly do to follow that? And Brahms struggled with that for a very long time and then came up with his first symphony, which, as we all know, um, followed up rather nicely. And (laughs) with his quartets, um, he composed to a certain to a certain level of finish, uh, to a varying level of finish, uh, they estimate somewhere around 20 quartets that he burned or threw away before uh, getting to this so-called quartet number one. Uh, it's it's tantalizing to think uh, of what incredible music must have been in those pieces. But uh, the first quartet, it really is. It's a piece that not only is a is a wonderful piece to listen to. Uh, a very engaging, um, emotionally engaging, very visceral piece. But it's also, I think, it's beyond reproach. It is extremely well-crafted. It's very compact. Everything is is just so. And uh, I think that that was absolutely very much by design. And it's interesting when you, you go through the, the three Brahms quartets, it's not like a like a cycle of Beethoven quartets that takes you from Beethoven as a young man to Beethoven at the end of his life. It, the Brahms quartets are written in a fairly condensed period of time, but the 
the change that that took place in him the the tension and the compactness which is not to say shortness of length because it's a big piece but of the of the first quartet the c minor quartet in contrast to the openness the confidence and in a certain sense the the serenity of a lot of the b flat quartet is really really remarkable and and i can't help but feel that that was the quartets i think must have been sort of a cathartic hmm. uh set of compositions for brahms yeah i uh we're, we're going to listen to a little bit of the, the first movement and the, of the last movement of the c minor quartet to get to that idea of of, of, of economy of means he had a great quote he's uh this the sense of economy of, of, of being concise is is very important to him and um you get a sense not only of of his uh desire to do this but also that self-deprecating humor you know <laughs> Brahms could could be very cutting he said it's it's not difficult to compose but it is fabulously difficult to dispense with the superfluous notes mm-hmm. and yeah. uh and let's let's listen to a little bit of this and, and James can talk a little bit more about about that idea of of kind of economy of means here in this that kind of sets the stage for what's to come well I think it uh, it clearly is a very dramatic piece from the opening you know this is not the you think of the opening of a piece like the well the second symphony or of the a major piano quartet you know these pieces that announce the way that they're going to unfold in a much more uh, expansive way. This um, this almost reminds me of a piece like uh, like Beethoven's Serioso Quartet. That I mean, it's you're right there when it starts, and the themes are short, and everything. It, well, your comment about superfluous notes, there aren't any. You know, it's clearly been um, boiled down to the bare essentials and um as i said before i mean it's a big it's a big piece it's not one of those pieces that has been miniaturized in any way but um there's there's this great scene that i always think of from uh, the movie amadeus where he plays some piece and i guess it was the archduke or whatever he says too many notes and they all agree too many notes too many notes <laughs> and um this piece has just the right number of notes even though there are a lot of them and they're very hard to play <laughs> so if you uh, you'll hear a few of those select notes, uh, especially that kind of arching, vaulting melody, it comes back in the uh, mm. in the final movement, just in the in the opening yeah, bars. and the um, and the rhythmic impulse of that da 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 yeah. da da da. Mm-hmm. 
I think I think of the C minor Beethoven Opus 18 number number four mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And t- such intensity, you know, just yeah. agitation and one of the challenges of, of playing parts of the piece seem to be um, conceived in somewhat of an orchestral way, but of course with four instruments, um, there's the danger of it of it feeling a little bit thin, and uh, and that can certainly be a challenge. Uh, how to create both a, a, a richness of sonority, but also um, a depth of musical purpose with only four instruments. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's one of the great challenges of, of playing a quartet, that it, 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 you have limited means to achieve what are often you know, among the most profound and personal statements that a composer ever makes. Mm-hmm. So he, we jump ahead a couple of years. the The first two quartets are from 1873, and uh, now in 1875, um, he, he knocks this particular quartet off in a lot shorter time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and he takes us in a completely different world mm-hmm. here. Um, tell me just your impressions of this of this B flat quartet. The first movement of the B flat quartet, I, I think many of you, if you don't know it, will will agree. It it gives the impression, if you were to walk into a rehearsal and hear it, you might think that it was, say, the scherzo third movement of a piece. Um, and strangely enough, actually, the in the place of a of a scherzo uh, in the third quartet, there's actually quite a, a turgid intermezzo. But the first movement is really it's very light and buoyant and uh, virtuosic and certainly. A, a very far world apart from the opening of the C minor quartet. So the mood is much lighter and, and, and more jovial, but is there any letdown in terms of that, that sense of structure and that, that discipline that he had when it came to... No, I think <laughs> that there's, if, uh, if anything, the third quartet, it's just such an impressive piece because it is so... It reminds me, in a, in a sense, of, of pieces by Mozart where the seemingly there's this incredible ease of composition. Now, that's sort of like when you see someone perform and you're like, oh, there's such ease of execution. Well, you don't know how much work or not goes into that. I mean, there's no way to tell, but, but you know how sometimes you have that, that feeling as a, as a listener. And, and certainly playing a piece like this, you just kind of, you just tip your cap because it, it flows so beautifully and so naturally. And the slow movement is one of the most inspired pieces I can think of and the uh the last movement this uh theme and variations is so incredibly engaging it's uh it's one of those pieces that 
it can really get stuck in your head to the point of getting kind of maddening once it's been <laughs> rattling around in there over and over and everything, you know, you walk down the street and you feel this theme and you're oh, I love you, but it's time to go. <laughs> Just that little bit at the end, the da-da-da, the, the kind of falling um, moment. I, I wanted to, to fast forward ahead to another uh, movement from this, this set of theme and variations. And this is where he weaves that, that opening idea that's, that's in 6-8 together with this kind of falling theme. Mm -hmm. and, and this moment of, of, you know, of counterpoint, of, of, of structure blending these, I think is just extraordinary. So yeah. we'll, we'll play, play another little section. I'll have you comment on it. That was kind of cruel. Um, yeah, about midway through that last moment, he works in the uh, that, 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 that that triplet type of thing. That is, it's in the first moment, it's in the last moment, and the combination of the two is one of those things where you just think, "Hey, that's bravo to you." Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, as I said, just an incredibly wonderful and impressive piece of music. Just uh, amazing, amazing stuff. There's another great excerpt from a letter where Brahms is in this process, this agonizing process of you know destroying these quartets and trying to figure out what's going to work. And he he's always kind of makes the mistake of showing things to Clara Schumann, who you know, and <laughs> who he was not always nice about. No, it. no. And uh, anyway, he had, he he was getting hassled now from uh, Zimrock, the, the the publisher, and he finally uh, you know Zimrock saying you gotta write quartets, and he finally wrote this letter and said, I am sorry, but I must ask you to be patient. I realize more and more how difficult it is to master virtuoso technique when one is not especially adapted for it. Uh, it took Mozart a lot of trouble to compose six lovely Haydn quartets, so I will try my hardest to turn out a couple fairly well done. So <laughs> he was never cutting himself any slack. No, no, and uh, there are some interesting letters from, uh, from Brahms to Joachim, who was a, a close friend, a, one of the... I suppose might have been considered the great violinist in certainly in that part of the world in, in his day. And uh, it's funny because Joachim was always happy to help with Brahms' violin parts. It was, he helped a great deal with the violin concerto. Uh, but Brahms, he, he didn't want to write things that were terribly uncomfortable. So there was this, this funny kind of relationship between the two because Brahms, he just he wrote hard music. It's hard to play. I mean, very almost nothing that he wrote is technically simple. Um, 
but he didn't want things to be awkward, and he, he kind of agonized over this, and Joachim wrote back, he said, well, no, this part can be done, this part can be done, and at one point, Brahm said, well, listen, if you have to put any fingerings in your part, then it's too complicated. And <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that would be kind of, can you imagine a composer of today saying such a thing? And of course, <laughs> uh, luckily for us, um, it was Joachim who, as I said, was this wonderful, amazing violinist by all accounts. So I, I think what a tragedy it would have been if he were writing for a lesser violinist who said, oh yeah, this is too hard, this is too hard, and this is too hard. Luckily, things weren't too hard for Joachim, so we're left with this wonderful virtuosic music. Well, speaking of this idea of, of kind of effortless complexity, I mean, that's really mm. what I, I wanted to, to get into just a brief discussion, then we'll move on to bar talk of, um, of the, the, the rhythmic character in Brahms, which is so fascinating. And I've, I've actually brought in a, an excerpt from the um, second quartet, the A minor, that you're going to be playing, the second in the cycle. And um, well, we'll just play this. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a juxtaposition of a kind of um, thumping Hungarian dance with um, more in, akin to a, a Viennese waltz, just very easily flowing. And, um, and I think it, it really speaks to that, that interesting way with rhythm that he has. That piece, the da 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 da, and then you have dum bum, dun dun, dun dun. Those two elements playing off one another, and da 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 da. Is it da 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 da, or is it da 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 da? And it's it's a fascinating piece to listen to, and I think that among the most successful performances are the ones that you can lock into whichever way you prefer. It's sort of like those those images where you look at it one way and it appears to be one thing and you, you sort of refocus your eyes and it looks to be something else. And Brahms did so much of this um, in so much of his music and pr particularly in in, uh, in these quartets. But I think that's yeah one of the most pronounced examples of, yeah. the, of that, that fascinating rhythmic ambiguity. Brahms was very interested in encouraging the young composers who were making names for themselves in Central and Eastern Europe in the late 19th century. The Hungarian Doknanyi was championed by Brahms. Brahms made sure that there were performances of the, uh, the piano quintet by Doknanyi, which have been on festival concerts over the years. Uh, Doknanyi and his fellow Hungarian Béla Bartók were connect, uh, connected through their friendly rivalry as outstanding young artists studying together at the Liszt Academy in Budapest. So um, Brahms kind of connecting to the to the provinces and what was happening musically. I think you hear that in that last one where we have the waltz and the kind of Hungarian dance mm -hmm. juxtaposed. As we move into uh, Bartok, and as radically different as, as the Bartok world is from Brahms, do you experience a, a sort of kinship between the composers? Um, yes, I do, in that um, they were both 
incredible craftsman um, the, where everything, there, you, you get a sense of incredible thought behind every element. And, you know, if there's something, if there's something in, in the score of a piece by either Brahms or Bartok, and you can't quite figure out what it is, that's, that's your problem, not the problem with the piece. I mean, the, every single thing has a very specific purpose. And, uh, and I, that being said, the other side of that connection is that they're both composers that, despite outward appearances being of, you know, very meticulous and, and correct, um, it's the it's the emotion behind it that is so very very pure and completely inimitable and unique. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear the opening of the Bartok Fourth Quartet. This music was composed between July and September of 1928, and uh, again the, the the compactness of of, of ideas. Yeah. Um, um, what what how do we how does that show itself just in the opening bars of this quartet. Well, to to, to say a little a little more about sort of getting into the the world of the Bartok. Yeah. I mean, Bartok is a is a composer I'm particularly passionate about, and um, this is an interesting for those of you that might not be as familiar with a lot of Bartok's music. This is certainly uh, jumping into the deep end uh, in the, Bartok's compositional output. Um, you can think of it somewhat as an arch. Um, the early pieces being very influenced by Franz Liszt, Richard Strauss, um, and they actually sound a fair amount like early Dognani, um, in some ways. And things developed more and more and more complexity towards the middle of his career, um, at which point he was writing pieces like the two sonatas for violin and piano and the third and fourth string quartets. Um, and then as his, as his life went on and uh, shortly before he died, he was again writing pieces that are much more, um, for lack of a better term, sort of uh, audience friendly. <laughs> you know, pieces like the concerto for orchestra or the, or the viola concerto or the third piano concerto pieces that... Um, are not particularly, uh, certainly not nearly as chromatic as the piece that we're about to hear now. Now, this fourth quartet is, the fourth quartet is an endlessly fascinating piece from every angle. Um, We were talking about rhythmic ambiguities. It's the type of piece you can listen to in so many different ways in terms of where you choose to feel the pulse, how you choose to feel the, the... almost like snippets of melodies rather than melodies themselves. Um, and the construction is, it's absolutely amazing. Well, you know where I know we're going to get into more of this. So talking about, I'll get back on topic. The, uh, (laughs) the beginning of the piece is based on these very close harmonies. Um, it's difficult to talk about this without some sort of musical, uh, without being able to demonstrate on a piano, but basically I'm sure we all have some, at least some, uh, musical background here in this room. So if you've got, say you're playing a triad, a third and a third, and then you add a seventh, 
You add a ninth, and you're like, oh, it's getting jazzy. You know, and then you add an 11th, <laughs> you add a 13th, you add a 15th. If you, if you continue adding thirds, eventually you end up with what could be just lying your arm on a piano, but it's spread out in such a way that the ear hears it in sort of a more friendly way. Now, often what Bartok does is take, he takes what would be very spread harmonies and condenses them so that they, the notes are really chromatically pretty much right next to one another. So you have this opening, you have the different instruments coming in at different times where the intervals are very, very, very close. So it's, it's, a, it's a very dense sound world and it's interesting how the different instruments, you know, some rise, some fall, and create these different kind of clusters of sound and um, it, it all within a very strong and uh, and propelling rhythmic uh, yeah. impetus. Yeah, and and we'll hear one of those um, little little cells of sound. We were mm -hmm. we we're thinking about that in Bartok, but we'll hear it in this opening movement, and um, we'll we'll try to sing it or, or point it out because it, then you hear it at the very <laughs> end again. It's it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very uh, similar to what was going on with Brahms and the, the yeah. way this this material is treated. So this is the opening few measures of the Bartok Fourth Quartet. Go right ahead and listen yeah. to the. Then this is a. I think you, you just. It's called. It's a codetta or a little uh -huh. little uh, recurrence is summing up at the very end of the quartet. So we're at the fifth movement now. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> now you have to come to the concert. Yeah, that ba da ba ba da da is the da 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 da. da. Yeah. yeah, this is this kernel. Um, if you if you picture that da 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 da, it's like an arch itself. It's very compact, uh, but up 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 down da down. And um, the you know, I was talking about how his entire compositional output is somewhat like an arch and this piece is entirely like an arch it's a form that he was fascinated by as as early as i think the like the first orchestral suite uh, he was working in this this idea of like a five movement form uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the you know piece like the music for strings percussion and celeste has this kind of arch form as well and um anyway this piece in five movements you have this opening that presents some of the very, very important kernels of information that you can lock into, then there's um, just an absolutely wild little muted scherzo that is 
so difficult and <laughs> <laughs> and incredible and uh then the uh the third movement which is really the center of the piece and the opening of the third movement I should have asked you about this you don't happen to have the opening of the third movement we're we gonna get I, to that i later? do yeah okay yeah well we, you're we're we're Going down the same path, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, you describe the arch or 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 shells is a, is another way to to sort of the, the first and the fifth movement are one sort of layer of shells, and then the second and the fourth movement that you're talking about. In fact, let's let's hear the second, which is that uh, that's yeah. that wild scherzo mm-hmm. that you're you're talking about. This is music where you've, you're glad you've been around the block with this piece a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, this isn't something you put together in a hurry. Um, that it's the same it's the same basic kernel of information that you're hearing in a slightly different form of this very chromatically dense figure going up and then descending again yeah so um the 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 parallel universe of this particular movement then is 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 the fourth movement the uh, the third movement we'll get to in a minute is the rich caramel center, <laughs> but uh, um, the fourth uh, has has a similar um, uh, almost frenetic quality to it. But uh, but this is one of the great effects of Bartok in terms of um, using pizzicato. The uh, yeah the entire fourth movement it's not a long movement but uh, it's big enough is uh, completely played without the bow uh, and all the instruments. It's just pizzicato. And it's amazing how much variety of sound Bartok is able to to conjure with uh, with his writing. Uh, he there's something that he he specifically asks for in a number of his works that has sort of commonly among musicians become known as the Bartok pizzicato, where he notates it in a very specific way. And what it's what you're asked to do is pluck the string in such a way that it actually rebounds against the fingerboard. So it creates a percussive effect as well as the pitch. Um, it's difficult to describe, but it's quite an arresting uh, effect. And then he specifies where on the instrument to pluck the string, whether it be at sort of a, a normal sounding point or close to the bridge for a different type of effect. There's strumming um, I've kind of cut up my knuckles from a few different <laughs> types of uh, of ways of, of of achieving these these demands. Um, it's it's a it's an incredible thing, and also once again that dum bum 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 the same type of figure. Thank you. 
so now we get to this um, the, the centerpiece of the movement, the um, of this arch form. And, and what does he do here to s- set this apart, to make this a, a, a very striking movement? Well, one thing he does right at the very beginning is expands the intervals. Um, if you're, are you playing the opening? Or? Well, you know what? Because I'm, a, I'm, a, I was we, swayed by the cello, and I missed the. I, I may have missed <laughs> the opening chords here. The but. very opening is instead of semitones, whole tones, and thirds, creating this this incredible effect of adding. It starts with one note and adds a voice, and adds a voice, and adds a voice, and adds more than more than the number of voices that are playing, because we all end up playing more than one note, but creates one of the first truly rich chords in the entire piece. You know, it's not a piece where the harmonic language is generally rich. It's often very condensed, uh, but this chord that just forms in front of you, and then it's, once again, Bartok and his specificity, he uh, notates it to be played without vibrato as this chord develops. And once the chord is established, then it's reestablished, still very softly, but with, he asks very specifically for vibrato. And it's this effect where you have this, and then you have something else. It's really an arresting thing. And the main, the main, I think, the thing that we that we come away from uh, as listeners from from this third movement um, is it's almost like a cello solo for for a good deal of the movement, and it is one of these very narrative Bartok moments where uh, it's incredibly emotionally penetrating. Where the, the cello plays a solo line that um, you know, uh, Bartok was influenced a great deal by Hungarian uh, folk music as well as the folk music of really the entire surrounding area. I mean, as far away as North Africa and Turkey. And, um, but the patterns of Hungarian speech are, are always felt in Bartok's move, uh, music with accents being on the first beats of things. Hungary, you know, the, these kinds of data, not da-da, Data and uh, there's something. It's very difficult to even talk about because there's something coming where it does at this moment. The, the, the cello line is one of the most remarkable things I think I've ever heard, and then it uh, it gets into the these elements of what is often referred to in Bartok's music as the the, the night music. You know, you're hearing. Imagine yourself on a like a, a summer night in a very very isolated place, and you're hearing crickets and owls and night birds and these little bits of sound and uh oh the the third movement is just extraordinary i mean there's nothing like it i can't think of a single other piece that's like it so this is very much um bartok as the the person that went through the countryside with his notebooks and his his wax cylinder recording machines um recording uh songs he would he would go from house to house and sort of do you know this particular song and and uh, and then and just I think you you hear in this music him just soaking up the the rural atmosphere mm-hmm. and, and uh, um, this this cello solo here. Mm-hmm. 
you said to me about Bartok that uh, I'm surprised that a composer so famous is is so relatively unknown in, in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, he's. I think he's definitely one of those composers that uh, to. You know, I, I can't speak for for any of you personally in the room, but I think as a general matter, uh, with a lot of music lovers, he's uh, a name that is very familiar where the music is not very familiar. You know, uh, a lot of audience members would say, oh, Bartok, Bartok, oh, but well, what Bartok do you know? Uh, well, uh, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there are certainly some pieces that for great reason are performed a great deal, you know, pieces like the Concerto for Orchestra, but there's a lot of Bartok that... Um, that remains strangely lesser known. And thankfully, the quartets are pieces that uh, are are championed by a lot of people. So I'm certainly not alone in my love of the string quartets mm-hmm. by any means. But um, but I'm certainly very excited to be able to uh, to present one here. It is the first performance of any of the Bartok quartets at, at our festival. Where do you take a piece like this when you have had a chance to to do it with your with your colleagues, um, Amy and Robert and Richard. And when you sit down to to rehearse or or whenever you know, if you have at your at your last date when you played it or here this week, um, where do you anticipate going with it, or what what will that new journey be like? I think that I guess really it, it, with any with any piece, you you just hope to constantly from a technical side this gets into an interesting issue people often talk about technique and musicality as if they're somehow different things which is when you think about it kind of an absurd idea because obviously you need the technique in order to create the music it's it's one of those funny things where you hear that at conservatories thought oh well their technique's not so good but they're very musical it's like well how can you tell <laughs> i mean <laughs> If they don't have the technique to do what they need to do, then how can you say it's musical or not? So from a technical side, I think you're always trying to refine things so that you can more closely replicate your ideal that, that, you've, that you've tried to come up with. And, and then as, as far as the this sort of intellectual side of it or whatever it would be, uh, you're just trying to get closer and closer to to what that music really is, and a piece like uh, like a Bartok string quartet is uh, is humbling because it's one of those pieces that you you can think you know it really well and still be finding things in it that are kind of those aha moments or the oh wow or the oh duh kinds of things, <laughs> where all of a sudden something will click in a particular way and. Uh, and that's always fun, you know. Yeah. It's, it's uh, it, it makes it constantly rewarding to go back to them. But I mean, even if you, hopefully, you're already at a point where you have a pretty clear idea of what's going yeah. on. But but you never you never really. It's always a process. You never really arrive anywhere with any of the great musical masterpieces. I think yeah. you're always always exploring more and. Uh, the same way any of us are different day to day, the way we're going to feel about something is going to change often very subtly, but sometimes not so subtly. And uh, and that's one of the magical things about performance. One of the pieces that has not been heard uh, in the 30 years of uh, Seattle Chamber Music Society concerts um, is the Dvorak Bagatelles. Mm. And tell me how it just occurred to you that you 
wanted to and, and could do this piece? Well, um, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, um, I was in Prague and I found a music store that I think was going out of business it, and it had the most incredible sales. And, uh, of course, being in Prague, they had lots of Dvorak and they had these, it, it's, it's a particular edition that is, if you buy it over here, it's quite expensive. And if you buy it there, it's, you almost feel guilty how cheap it is. And with it being on sale, I actually bought so much music that I, I had to find a box, like like a kind of a box you'd get at a, at a wine store or something, a pretty good-sized box that I filled with music that cost me about 50 bucks to fill it up with so much Dvorak. I mean, of course, some Janacek and some Spetna and all these other great, great Czech works, but uh, probably a half dozen or more of the Dvorak string quartets in these beautiful editions and the, the string quintets and the sextet and the piano quintet and the piano quartets and the cypresses. And you're going to be hearing a lot of this music over the next few years. Hope you like that. Uh, but the bagatelles was a piece that at that point I didn't know these pieces. And I, and I took a look at it. I said, bagatelles, huh? What is this? So two violins, cello and harmonium. I thought, okay, well, it's only... Th- 50 cents, sure, I'll take it. And um, and it was actually at um, at a good friend's festival. Maybe some of you heard uh, the violinist Renaud Capuçon. He was here in the fall playing with the symphony. A wonderful violinist and a very good friend of mine. Uh, I was with him at his former festival in uh, Normandy. And I wasn't actually playing in this group, but he played the Dvorak Bagatelles, but they couldn't get a harmonium. So he had an accordion player playing. And, uh, and, I, and I fell in love with the pieces. And uh, I thought, you know, it would be so fun to do the Dvorak Bagatelles, but who's got a harmonium? Who knows how to play a harmonium? Uh, I don't know. So it kind of kicked around in my brain for a while. And uh, I was talking one time with, uh, with my good friend Andrew Armstrong, who's here this week, and I mentioned these pieces. I said, oh, I'd love to do those pieces sometime, but you know, who knows how to play the harmonium? He says, well, I play the harmonium. I thought, well, of course you do, Andy. Uh, and it uh, turns out that he had played these pieces before, and I thought, oh. And he said, oh, yeah, if you get a decent instrument, which is a real challenge, then, uh, then of course, it works beautifully. And so I spoke to Connie Cooper, our executive director, and... I was so happy about this because I had no idea, but apparently this is one of your favorite pieces, right, Connie? <laughs> so, uh, so Connie was more than happy to help and uh, tracked down a just beautiful instrument that uh, I think lives down in Tacoma. And it is, it's, it is the nicest harmonium I've ever heard. Now, I can't say I've heard more than about half a dozen ever in my life, um, in person, that is, but... Um, but this is a—it's an extraordinary instrument. So we're very lucky to have been able to bring it in for this. Yeah. So, so people know it's a—it's a reed organ. Yeah, it's, it's like a chamber organ. It was yeah. a very popular house instrument of the mid to later nineteenth uh, century. And, and this, this piece, the bagatelles, was it was very much written. I mean, you talk about chamber music, right? Well, this really was chamber music. This was written for friends of his to play, in the home. I mean, the the harmonium was not really meant to generally speaking, to be any kind of a concert instrument. I mean, it was, it was sometimes used in, in symphonic music or opera to to give the sound of, of something much more intimate. Um, 
And then I must say again that this instrument that, that Connie Cooper tracked down is just perfect because it is the perfect mix of, of a, a really intimate, warm, inviting sound, but also um, with, an, with enough going on and enough complexity to work just perfectly upstairs mm-hmm. in that room. I, I'm really excited about it. So people who will hear it and, and hear the, the way it blends with the strings. Um, this, we have a recording of this. Dvorak uh, Bagatelles. It's interesting, he quotes a, a Czech folk song called The Bagpipes Are Playing, so he's really going for that kind of bucolic atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and it, was, uh, it was written, I understand, for a, a music journalist friend and, uh, who, who had a harmonium and uh, played regularly with string players. So it really was for that, um, that you know, the, the home market, the people yeah. making music at home. Yeah, it was written around the same time as, uh, as his first set of Slavonic dances, um, which was another popular home medium for the, the single piano with four hands for two players. And um, yeah, it, it's funny how we, we sometimes lose sight of the, of the origins of so much of this chamber music that now we hear in concert halls, uh, of that a lot of it was written for homes, written for, for just friendly occasions, friendly get-togethers. And the, uh, I mean, Dvorak is such a, such a magical composer. Is he, he writes, there are several of his, of his chamber works that I, that I can think of are, are pieces that they can be enjoyed on so many different levels of complexity. You know, you can get, you could get four amateurs of relatively modest talent uh, together to play this piece. And they would have so much fun and possibly even some of the people listening would have fun too. <laughs> uh, but, but really, from, from there on, on up to people who, like us, do this for a living and do it all the time, I mean, it, it, uh, that whole kind of range of, of musical abilities um, can get something wonderful out of this music because it's, it's, it's so simple yet so so rich and so not simple and and there's so much to constantly explore to get deeper into and to turn it into a more and more rewarding and and kind of profound experience you know profound in its simplicity yeah the bagatelles are means kind of a trifle something to be tossed off but on the on the other hand and this it seems like this is a theme that's gone through this entire hour this you know the ability to make something um 
that, that is so simple on the surface, but it, but it has such underlying complexity yeah. to it. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's a high violin part. It goes to a lot of different keys, so it's 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 not a not a trifle at all. He wrote uh, the music in twelve days in in eighteen seventy eight, and kind of to co connect it back to Brahms. Brahms had uh, discovered this composer out in the provinces and said to his publisher Fritz Zimrock, "Go after this guy Dvorak," and yeah. that, and that's how the the Slavonic dances were were published. And so um, Dvorak was really starting. On the kind of cusp of his of his international, uh, international. Yeah, Brahms spent a, 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 an enormous amount of time and energy uh, championing Dvorak, editing his his scores and performance materials for publication. And uh, yeah, Brahms is he's an interesting character. You know, there are accounts which seems like at times he could come across as a bit of a, a bit of a crusty guy. There's there's a hilarious story, I guess, of him at some dinner party. And he was just being ornery towards everyone. And I guess at the end of the night, he said, well, if there's anyone here who I have not offended, I most sincerely apologize. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he was an incredibly kind-hearted person. Um, he must have been. I mean, it, there, there are these also wonderful stories of him walking around Vienna, and he, he, he would quite often have uh, a trail of children following him around because Mr. Brahms always had candies in his pocket that he'd give to the kids. It's so interesting. You were talking earlier about um, the Brahms quartets and the idea of you know scoring them so they're not too thin, not too thick. Uh, the, he was always struggling with that, and and he was you know, he was a, he was a great pianist, and he wrote these these big piano parts. And, and the, the story with the second cello sonata was the cellist that he's reading through the piece with for the first time. You know, says uh, Dr. Brahms, it's it's a brilliant piece you've written here, but but I I can hardly hear myself. And, <laughs> and Brahms says, "Lucky you." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or or the, the the story of the there. It might have been the string quartets, but or or piano quartet, and they're playing it for Brahms, and um, and he's he's listening, and and uh, they say. Dr. Brahms, how how did you like uh, how did you like the tempo? And, and he said, oh, I thought the tempo was great, especially yours." Yeah, he was he was a tough customer. It sounds like I, I wanted to play this last. We'll we'll wrap up here, but I wanted to play this last bit from the um, Bagatelles. This is the fourth movement, and again, I, I guess this is sort of the idea. It's it's so wistful and melancholy and, and these great moments in, in Borjak that you experience. And, and also really, you know, rather sophisticated sense of, of, of counterpoint. He's always thinking how voices work. And this entire movement, it, it's, it's very simple, but it's, it's, it's intriguing in how the, the cello and the violin just kind of chase each other around mm -hmm. through, through this whole movement in a canon or, or round. And, and you hear the harmonium making another appearance here as well. What are you hoping to accomplish in your um, 
time as the artistic director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society that, that you haven't already done in, a, in just piece. a fabulous career. I mean, what, what, are, what are the challenges and the exciting things that you, you know, are, are happy to be working on? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sides to certainly what, what I hope to do. I mean, it, uh, to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's one of the great parts about about this position is just how self-indulgent I can be, you know, <laughs> and that that sounds terrible, and it probably is, but but to justify it somewhat, um, I think that there's something that isn't talked about enough in the music world uh, in terms of a, a glimpse into how I think performers need to be, and and that's that is the issue of whether you call it self-indulgence or maybe more appropriately self-confidence, where when you put yourself out there, um, you can't think about who you're trying to please in that audience. You can't think about playing for a critic or playing for a particular friend or someone in the audience who you might particularly respect or someone in the audience who has maybe criticized you before and has a certain idea in mind. The only, the only thing you can do is, is play the way you believe it needs to be. And so that ties into, uh, into creating programs as well and, and trying to create a musical atmosphere for an organization. You know, as a as a performer, when I go out to play, say I'm playing a piece like the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto that a lot of music lovers have heard, and a lot of music lovers have their favorite recording of it, and they they kind of have some preconception of what that piece is or should be. Um, I I just have to say, well, I don't know what you're expecting. I don't know what you're expecting, but if I play this the way I feel it has to be. And if I play with, with complete commitment to that ideal, I've just got to trust and hope that more of you will like it than won't. And, uh, and I've had funny experiences with that very piece now that I think of it. Um, I remember a, a time that I played that, that concerto and there was a post-concert discussion and uh, someone asked, I said, oh, uh, Mr. Ennis, you, you know, your, your conception for the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto is... is it's really very sort of classical and, and refined and almost like looking backwards towards, uh, towards Mozart. Or, um, and why is it that you decided to play it that way? Uh, so I, I said, well, I didn't, you know, it's not so much a decision. It's that that's the way I have to play it because that's the way I think it has to be. It's not, it's not an option for me, if I'm going to be honest with myself, that's how I have to play it. If to you, it sounds a particular way, and I tried, I think I managed to say this in a nicer way than it's sounding now, but basically what I said is, you know, if, if you hear it that way, that says more about your preconceptions than about my ideas, because you're comparing it in reference to something else, which is clearly what you have in your ear. So, you know, interesting. And, um, a couple minutes later, I noticed some, someone walked in late, and she uh, sat down and then asked her question a little while later and said, uh, Mr. Ennis, now, you chose to approach the Mendelssohn Concerto as a very turbulent, passionate, romantic uh, 
piece of music almost looking forward to like Tchaikovsky and I'm wondering why you decided to play it that way and of course everybody laughed at her and I felt kind of bad for her because she didn't know what she had said but so anyway this is getting back to my original point I think as uh, as a programmer um, you know I, I love this stuff it's it's great I get to put on pieces and musicians that that inspire me and fascinate me and uh, I feel like I mean I'm looking around the room obviously I know personally quite a number of you and and there's there's such an incredible family atmosphere to this organization um, that it gives me that there's this kind of warm feeling of like love and confidence that it that if I believe in something strongly enough and feel that I'm able to bring in the musicians to make the strongest case for this that 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 I think that it will be a good experience for everyone I, I and I know that there are going to be certain pieces and certain performances that people will like better than others and that's part of the fun of it you know is, is I love going out to an audience and and hearing discussions at intermission, someone's saying, you know, I just love that. The other person's saying, that was really not for me. <laughs> but it was interesting. That, you know, because it, it's, it's not... It, the concerts are different experiences for everyone. And, and for some people, maybe they want to, to go to a concert to, to relax and wind down. And that's great. And maybe there are other people that want to go to a concert to be inspired and worked up. And that's great, too. And... Um, I'm just I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to do all of this with an organization that is so incredibly well organized and so well run and has such great history and has such wonderful ties to to the city and to the community. It's it's a it's a really a great honor, great privilege. Well, we're so glad you're here. Thank and, you. And uh, especially taking time this afternoon when you have bar talk to polish and so much to do. <laughs> It's, uh, it's very generous of you. Um, so thank you all for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.